Father, we thank you, dear God. You're so wonderfully awesome, perfect, and holy. We thank you for just giving us your word in the persona of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace, love, and forgiveness, and for constantly allowing us to know you more and more and more. We thank you, Lord, that we're positioned to receive your grace, love, and forgiveness. And because of that, God, our lives are the richer and fuller for it. We thank you now that you would open our eyes, God, that we may see all that you'd have us to see. Open our ears, Father, that we may hear all that, we, that you would have us to hear. And God, we don't do this. We don't ask this. We don't seek these things for our own aggrandizement so we can be puffed up with knowledge and information. But so that we may partner with you in fulfilling our divine purpose and destiny that you've laid out for each one of us individually and the Freedom Center corporately. Now, in the name of Jesus, we pray and give you thanks. Amen. All right. So, we need to do a little bit of background about the Hebrews. And the reason why Hebrews will be the conclusion for us uh, is because there are two places we talked about in the New Testament where you saw the word tithe mentioned. Now, for those teachers that you may hear that deal with proof texting, and I thought that we've dealt with proof texting somewhat uh, in prior messages, uh, that is where they go and they grab a word that supports a topic that they want to talk about, and then they find a listing of verses that coincide or possess that word, and then they kind of push them together and they and they just keep you know saying go to this verse this verse and this verse and 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 they communicate that thought process well there are only two such places in the new testament for the tithe one is in matthew the 23rd chapter now we dealt with that matthew 23 23 when jesus is giving the seven woes to the pharisees and he speaks about how you you tithe of of mint and cumin and and these little spice plants but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And so, you know, if you were to take the 23rd verse and just kind of pop it out, and you go, see, Jesus said you should tithe, well, you know, somebody would be like, oh, well, you know what, I guess that ends the argument. But if you read the entire piece in context, like, I don't know, start at the first verse, by the time you get to the 23rd verse, you understand that it is a very small part of the larger argument that Jesus was making. And this is where context comes into play. So the second place that you'll see tithe is going to be in Hebrews, the 7th chapter. So again, we're not going to go directly to the verse. We're going to actually take a look at the context. We're going to take a look at Hebrews, what the author is talking about. Remember, these are letters. Letters being written to a, a specific group of people. And understanding who is being written to and what they're talking about is very important. It's like any other conversation that you may have with anyone else. We know what it's like when someone walks in midway in a conversation you're having with somebody and then they want to begin to interject. And you look at them, now if you're old school, depending on how old you are, you may, you know, pop off with you dipping and dappening and don't know what's... Come on, man, don't leave me out here. You knew, you were speaking it, you were speaking it. Right, or you may go, this is an A and B conversation. Come on, man. Right? So, you know, because the, the concept is, is that the individual is, it was not a part of the beginning of the conversation, and because of that, they really don't know what's happening. The Bible is no different. When you go inside and you pick out one verse and pull it out of the middle of an 18-chapter book, and then base a theological doctrine on it, you miss the point. And at some place in your walk, 
You're going to have to desire to seek the whole truth. And this is where we are. So Hebrews, let's take a look. Some background information. Um, now, Hebrews refers to the descendants of Abram. Uh, this is also refers to the language that they spoke. Uh, the New Testament, uh, excuse me, the Old Testament for the most part is written in the Hebrew language except for a couple of books, Daniel, Ezra. Uh, you know, there, there are some pieces there that are written in Aramaic. Uh, but, but Hebrew is the language. So, in a lot of respects, the book of Hebrews really is the, is the root of the New Testament. Right? Because the Jews, the ministry that Jesus brought initially was to the Jews. Right? And, and so, under, you know, the presentation that we'll see in Hebrews is very fundamental to their belief system. And, and you're going to see that there's some parts in there where they begin dealing with, with, um, with, gra with some parts of grammar, like tense, like past tense, present tense, future tense of words that you'll see because he's dealing with the Hebrews where they currently are. And that system that they have in place is the old covenant or the system of the law, the Mosaic law. So as he begins to interact with them, as he begins to deal with them on it, you're, you're going to kind of, you're, you're going to bring with you the understanding that these are the specific people that he's dealing with. Again, the, the, the author of Hebrews oftentimes is given to be Paul. Now there is some small debate as to, to the validity of the authorship being to Paul because it's so significantly different than the majority of the greetings that he gave in a lot of the letters that he wrote. I mean, uh, the two that stand out the most that are given to his credit are Galatians. We know that the Galatians had that greeting was nothing like any of the letters. He came off, he was just mad. What's wrong with you? Why y'all listening to people be lying? You know you're not under the law. I mean, that was essentially his greeting in the book of Galatians. And then in Hebrews, it's a little different as well, but the, but the audience is so distinctly different. If you look at Galatians, he's, he's dealing with Gentiles, people who had no exposure to the law. And then with Hebrews, he's dealing with people, that's all they've ever had is the law. So see, so what he's introducing to them is so significantly different and so significantly far removed from what they've ever been exposed to, I love the tact that he takes in dealing with it. And you'll also see why we end up having to reference Abram's tithe. Because remember, the theme here is about Jesus Christ. For those Jews that were, they were under the law, that were non-believers at the point, at the time, accepting Jesus Christ as the Messiah is the central point of writing Hebrews. That's the whole point. The whole point is getting them to understand the supremacy of Christ. He has to convince them that the Messiah that we've been looking for from the prophets has actually come. And you'll, you'll see that. That's the great context to have in, in dealing with this. Okay, so let's start at Hebrews, the first chapter. Now, um, now we, we have to understand a couple of things that when you're talking to people that you know and have a relationship with, you really won't talk with them and give them background. Like, for, for those that I'm sitting here looking at now, I'm not going to tell you, hey, my name's Reginald, how are you? Yeah, you know, my wife, Nicole, and I, or, you know, we have three kids. I'm not talking to you, I'm not giving you background about myself. Because you already know me. And so for the writer here, when he begins talking, and we'll, we'll get right into it and get to see this, there's some background information that he's not giving because the audience that he's talking to 
already knows what he's talking about. See, and that's why we talked about earlier about identifying the audience and understanding who the author is and understanding who he's talking to is important because the things that are not spoken does not mean they're not true. Again, you can't take the Bible and then make it this otherworldly document. It's not. It's, it's people, it's, it's common sense, it's relationships. It, it makes sense when you look at it from the big picture view that when you talk with somebody you're familiar with, you're not giving them your whole bio. You just kind of get to the point, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you want to discuss. Okay, so let, let's just, let's, let's get it cracking here. Uh, Hebrews, first chapter, first verse, he says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he had appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, not past sin, by the way, Throw that, throw that in there. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Okay, so writer pops off. You know, there's no introduction. Hi, I'm, I'm the apostle Paul. I am the servant of the Lord. I greet you in the name of peace and joy. I mean, that, that greeting is not there, which is, again, why they, you know, the authorship is slightly debated. But he does hammer home directly to the point. The first thing he's challenging is the prophets. Now the Hebrews hold Moses and the prophets in very high regard. Now if you think back to when Jesus was walking the earth, some very cool things here. Jesus would begin to really push buttons with people based on the law and where they were. So, you know, when he wanted to kind of drive home and, and, and Pastor Rob has been on me for months about doing a series called Connecting the Dots and he's just about wore me down. Um, Jesus was on a timetable to get to the cross because of what had to happen at Pentecost, which was 50 days after the Passover. So Jesus really couldn't have just been crucified at any point in time. Everything had to be purposed so that the fulfillment of what the prophets were speaking of could be accomplished, right? So, in order to help expedite the process, right, because the Pharisees were, I mean, Jesus so much overwhelmed him, you can see the ebb and flow of how he walked the earth in his ministries of three and a half years, how there was a lax period, and Jesus would come right back and poke him. One of the things he would do is that he would say, yeah, well, you know, before Moses was, I am. Now make no mistake about it, the Hebrews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those members of the Sanhedrin Council, the ruling party there, they, hearing this, would understand exactly what he just said, which was that I know you hold Moses in high regard because he gave you the law, but I just want you to know that before Moses even existed, I was there. Now that ticked them off something fierce to the point where you would read right after that where it would say that Jesus disappeared <laughs> into the crowd because they were purposed to kill him right then and there. But it wasn't his time yet, right? You gotta, gotta have that point. So in, in, in Hebrews, he comes right to the place, he goes, okay, the prophets, the prophets, they were good, but Jesus is better. I mean, that's 
you're really driving home. Remember, their belief system comes through Moses who gave them the law and the prophets who are telling them about the Messiah that's going to come. I mean, that's a really big deal for them. So he's already saying, look, Jesus, he, he's way bigger and better than that. Okay, he says that, um, then he deals with the angels. And he says, oh, not only is he, does, does he trump the prophets, he trusts the angels too. Right? So he's dealing with the supremacy of Christ. Alright, so let's just, you know, I'm going to do the whole, I'm going to do the whole book of Hebrews. I only got 30 minutes. <laughs> right, so, but, you, but you read, definitely Hebrews is a very cool reading. Um, pop over to chapter 3. Right, so we dealt with the prophets. He's, Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the angels. Right? Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Let's start real quick. And let me... Again, let's also take a look at how this is being written, right? Very cool. I really want to demystify scripture. I thank God for, for the calling and commission he's given me to teach the way that I do. We do this all the time in how we communicate. When you want to show that something is better or greater than something else, you compare it to what's inferior so that someone can see, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not that difficult. Right? So, I don't want to get in trouble with any stores, but let's say you have a pair of shoes that cost $7 and a pair of shoes that cost $170. Right? You, you, when you want to show the difference in quality, you, you, you compare, you know, a greater to the lesser. That's, that's not, I mean, that's not a big deal. But for some reason in the Bible when it's done, all of a sudden no one can understand the concept. Which, which, is, which is what the writer here is doing with Jesus Christ. So he's already compared the prophets and the angels. Now he's going after the heartbeat of, of the Judaic belief system, which is Moses. So he says, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also faithful in, his, in all his house. First comparison, verse 24, this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful. Now, was is in italics, and you'll, depending on what version of Bible you're reading, let me do, let me drop this little piece into you. When you look at your versions, and it's definitely true for the King James and the New King James, uh, I, I use the New King James, you don't have to go out and buy the New King James, I'm not telling you to have the Bible I have. <laughs> when you see italics, that means that in the original language that they're getting the, the scripts from, that the word wasn't there. It was, it's, it's an Eng English language thing. And they put the word there, they put it in italics to bring clarification. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes the italics words really need to be overlooked because they're not appropriate. Right? If you're reading the King James Version, Authorized Edition 1611, and you see those there, 
you know, there's no easy way around this. You're, you're, you're going to have to have the greater context to understand those italics and how they're placed and where they're placed because it's being processed through men who are saying, okay, well, this says this, and, and their issues are not with God, the Holy Spirit. Their issues are with how to write it from one language to another. It's called transliteration. And for anyone who's listening or anyone here who's bilingual, completely understand the concept. Because, you know, if you speak Spanish or if you speak Japanese or if you speak French, if you speak any of those languages and you're trying to translate for somebody, you ever notice how when translations go forward that they don't speak one word for word? They wait. They listen. Because they have to take what you just said, find the words that match and communicate the same thoughts and then give you those words. That's what you're reading in English. There was no English. The Bible was written in English. Okay, so just kind of keep that in mind, right? And that's why some people be like, oh, the Bible isn't true. Yes, the Bible is true. Now, everything in the Bible ain't right, but it's sure enough the truth. And that's a whole nother session. Don't look at me like that. All right, so let's go back to where we were. Verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So there, here's the comparison that Jesus is greater than Moses, just like the one who builds the house has more honor than the house itself. That Moses was, now you'll see this, especially when it comes to Paul. When Paul deals with the law, when he deals with Moses and the prophets, he always refers to them as past tense. And so he was like, hey, Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is now. Right? So he's now, he's hit all three. He's hit the prophets, he's hit Moses and the angels, supremacy of Christ is what the writer's dealing with. Now let's get to Hebrews, the seventh chapter. All right, because this actually is the concluding sermon uh, for, for the Love of Money series, so we have to deal with the tithe. Okay, so typology. We, we have to, I've got to tell you a little bit to understand how this works, right? So the prevailing theory thought, the methodology is utilized in, in theological circles to communicate how you study, what you see, how you read and process information, is that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, right? So when you're looking at the Old Testament, what you're seeing is Jesus Christ and what he's going to accomplish when, when he comes, right? So... And this could get really technical. <laughs> okay, so, for example, Moses takes the children out of Egypt, right? And Moses, uh, it's very cool, Moses is commissioned with taking the people to the promised land. However, along the way, Moses, Moses runs into some problems. So, the children of Israel get out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea, right? This is known as the Mosaic Baptism. There are six baptisms in the Bible. Um, this is known as the Mosaic Baptism, right? The first baptism you're probably familiar with is the Noahic Baptism. When God opened up the windows of heaven, you know that's rain, right? Opened up the windows of heaven for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so, so what happens is that they, 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 the Red Sea parts and they get through another side and they go and like, you know, 
just into the beginning of the journey, they're like, dude, we're hungry and we're thirsty. We're better off in Egypt. And so God says, don't worry about it. I got you. Look, there's a rock right there. Moses, I want you to take your rod, the same rod you lifted up to split the Red Sea, and I want you to strike the rock and water will flow, right? So they, the, the people got water, the animals got water, everybody's happy. Now they have some issues there, so they're, they're going around, you know, essentially in circles in the wilderness. Well, Moses kind of gets fed up with people complaining, murmuring, and the same issues that he's already addressed, that God's already addressed, they're still having problems with. So second time comes around, People are complaining, we're thirsty, we're hungry, we don't have... Now, there's a lot goes on, so you have to read on your own. So this time, God says, Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to speak to the rock, okay? Moses, in his anger toward the people, takes the rod and strikes the rock. Water comes out. God's like, yeah, I'm going to need to see you. Come here. God takes Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo and says, Moses, look out. You see the land there? That's Canaan. That's the promised land. Yeah, you're not going. And then he kissed him to sleep and buried his grave. Now, I will say that there, I believe, part of the issue was that there was a lack of trust and dependence on God from Moses, but there's also a lack of maturity. Because at some place, you have to move from putting your hands on stuff and performance and doing things to make God, to please God, and speaking or having faith to please God. You see? Strike the rock. Speak to the rock? That's okay. It's free of charge. No ties. Okay. So Joshua then is the person that God is going to replace Moses to get into the promised land. Joshua is a type of Christ. He is the person that takes you into the place that God has promised you. He's a type of Christ. Now during that whole piece... Another part of symbolism that you can see having pertaining to Christ is the, the poisonous snakes that were going around biting the Hebrews and they were just falling out, dying. That they erected a bronze statue and they picked it up, they, they held it up, and the Hebrews, when the snakes came, only needed to look at that statue and they were saved. And then Jesus comes along and said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto me. How cool is that, right? So you, you, you have these, these types of shadows and symbolisms that occur. Well, the part here in Hebrews 7 is Melchizedek, right? So the, when Melchizedek comes on the scene, and we dealt with that right in Genesis, the 14th chapter, when he comes on the scene, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't have a genealogy. He has beginning, no end. He is a type of Christ. Now, it's real important because the priestly order, this is a big deal, the priestly order that is in existence when the writer is writing to the Hebrews is what he has to show that Christ is greater than any of the order. Now remember the Aaronic priesthood. Remember every Levite, yeah, every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. Right now they, they completely understood the Aaronic priesthood, that was it. Because you had the Day of Atonement, you read Leviticus, Day of Atonement. So every year, you know, bulls and goats were slain, and then their blood covered their sins for one year. Yeah, one year. Right? Okay, so when you, when you, when we get ready to read Hebrews 7, and you see the comparison being made, the people that he's talking to fully grasp it. Now you and I, listen, it, it doesn't really resonate with us. 
We've never been subject to the Aaronic priesthood. I mean, has anyone ever felt here that they were subject to the Aaronic priesthood? No, nobody knows any Levites here, huh? No, no, no Levites. Not in your, not on Facebook, no Levites. MySpace, Twitter, not following Levites. Okay, so that's really important to kind of understand because the reality is, is that they were, you know, really responsible for making sure the law was read and all that kind of stuff. We don't follow them and we don't deal with them, but yet and still the mentality exists. Interesting. Hebrews 7 chapter, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the, king, of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now the writer is getting straight to the point of who Jesus is in reference to who they hold in the highest regard. Now he lets you know already that the translation from Melchizedek comes in comes to be king of Salem or king of peace and he says now look this is a big deal because Abraham is the father of the faith for them it all starts with Abraham and so his point is that Abraham remember who you're giving tithes to you're subject to Abraham did not give a tithe to king of Sodom right remember that whole piece as a matter of fact, he was going, he was just like, I don't want nothing. I don't even, if my sandal broke, I'm one foot in it. I ain't taking even a sandal strap from you. But to Melchizedek, Abram gives a tenth of all the spoils of war. Okay, now remember we talked about how you're looking at the belief that because the tithe is mentioned with Abram, that it's legitimate and it's for today because it's before the law. But the writer here is explaining to you the same thing that we've talked about and that the way that the tithe is presented and dealt with today, the way that people are requiring it today, is not the picture of what Abraham deals with. Now if you're listening by way of the website, go back and, and hit the, the last two uh, about Abraham's tithe to understand that. But watch how he utilizes that whole scenario. Remember the book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ. We start from the beginning. And in here, now he's, he's systematically going through and everyone that is in this big hierarchy picture for that faith system, he's saying, Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. Which is the point of writing. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was to whom even the, the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. What we just talked about. So the writer I, says to them, okay, now you know this person, Melchizedek, had to be great because the patriarch father, the father of faith, gives him a tenth. 
of what? The spoils of war. Then he immediately goes into the comparison for what they would be familiar with, which is Levitical priesthood receiving tithes from their brethren. You were paying tithes to the Levites so that they could eat because they didn't have an inheritance. Which is the point the writers try to make this as clear as he can in showing the supremacy of Christ. He goes on to say that those folks that are receiving tithes from their brethren, the Levites themselves, are in the loins of Abraham, what we said earlier, because his grandson Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, produces the 12 tribes because he had 12 sons. One of his sons was named Levi. Man, this is an awesome class. This is great. Right? I mean, is it starting to click and starting to connect kind of how, I mean, it's, it really should demystify a lot of this because it's very straightforward and simple what he's trying to accomplish. Uh, verse 6, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises, right? Genesis 12 is when Abram got the promises, right? So he's trying to say, look, you're paying tithes to Levites, right? Because he didn't with the Hebrews where they are today. That's why he's using the present tense because his audience are Hebrews who are still dealing with the law. And some of these folks are trying to mix the law with grace, grace being Jesus Christ. They're trying to mix the two. And so he says, look, Melchizedek has no genealogy. You're giving tithes to somebody you already know came from Abraham. You know their genealogy. Do you see the comparison that he's making? And he says, the, person, the promises that you hold on to today, which come from Abraham, he, that man, Abraham, gives tithes to Melchizedek. Again, showing that Melchizedek is greater. Which is the whole point of Hebrews is showing the supremacy of Christ. Verse 7, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Which is the whole point. Melchizedek came to the Valley of Kings and he, he uh, met with Abram and he blessed Abram with bread and wine. And then said, Glory be to the Most High God who gave you this victory. And then Abram does what? Gives him a tip of the spoils of war. And then the writer is saying in verse 7, beyond all contradiction, again, part of this is cultural context and understanding. Now, he's not going any further explanation because they already understand what he's saying. And that is, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Who blessed who? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Who's greater? Melchizedek. And who's Melchizedek a picture of? Jesus. What's the point of Hebrews? The supremacy of Christ. Verse 8. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Do you understand that system? Do you understand what is being said? This writer is saying, look, the whole system that you're dealing with with tithes, you have to understand that it originates and starts with Melchizedek. Under the law, 
that's and that's what you're required to pay your tithes for actually started with Abram who the Levites are inside of him they haven't even been born yet so how could possibly they be greater now again this is where I think some of the confusion comes in because he's talking about you know hey the, the Levites received tithes those words those action words those verbs verb is an action word right it's English class it's present tense because of who he's talking to. If you notice, Paul never addresses tithe in any letter that he writes other than Hebrews. Because the only group of people that would have been dealing directly with the law are the Hebrews. He would never have addressed them with any Gentile churches. Irrelevant. Search and scour your Bible. Doesn't exist. But it would definitely make sense as to why he's dealing with it here. Okay, let's, let's finish it out. Verse 11, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Now keep in mind that the Aaronic priesthood are the ones who receive the tithes from the Levites. Remember, the people paid tithes to the Levites. The Levites paid uh, tithes to the priest. Every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. So you had that distinction. And he says, you have, you have those who come from Aaron, if they were all they needed to be because they represented the law, there would not have need to be a priest who came outside of the law. Only those who were Levites were authorized to receive the tithe. Melchizedek received it from Abraham because he did not represent the law. Jesus doesn't represent the law. Are you, are you following? I read verse 11 again. Therefore, if perfection went through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Jesus was from the tribe of where? Judah! And if you were from the tribe of Judah, you couldn't officiate at the altar. What tribe was authorized by law to officiate at the altar? Levites. Now this is what this writer is getting at because he's dealing with the Hebrews and they're, they're following and tracking this information because they live it. So by him saying, look at Melchizedek and then showing them Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate form of Christ, he is blowing their mind. Now, in explaining all that we've done, and we're going to wrap it up here shortly, how many of you think this is about tithing? Doesn't sound like it's about tithing at all, does it? But if you proof text, and you go and look up in your concordance the word tithe, and then you see Hebrews 7 next to it, then you go, look, ah, New Testament, there's the word tithe. And then people fall victim and are manipulated 
into thinking, oh, well, you know what? He's right. You know the famous saying, right? It's in the Bible. Well, so is the murder and rape of children. Man, it's quiet up in here. So obviously, by saying this in the Bible, it's not some magic elixir that makes everything you say out of your mouth correct. Cool. Okay. Well, good morning to you. Good morning. All right. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if... In the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. Is the writer's motivation and intent made clear here? We're going to continue reading. Verse 20, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. You don't need a better covenant if the original covenant did not suck. The Lord never was meant to put you in the presence of God. It was to show you why you needed a savior. It was to show you to the end of yourself. The reason why you have hope is not because of the law. The law would leave you hopeless. Which is what you see Sunday after Sunday sitting in pulpits everywhere and congregations in the seats because they have no hope of ever keeping the law being preached. But Jesus, through our faith in him, gives us a real hope that I don't have to be perfect because he was. I can receive his grace, his love, and his forgiveness. And my relationship with God is seen through his life. Jesus is the surety of a better covenant. Now remember, the whole point of the writer in this particular letter is showing the supremacy of Christ. So now he cuts right to the chase. He cuts right to the meat of the matter. And that is because he's dealing with the priests as they are. He's dealing with them in their law. He's dealing with the Levitical priesthood. He says that covenant is the lesser covenant. He says Jesus is the surety of a better covenant. Verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, this would have been perfectly plain for those who are listening because once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went in behind the veil 
through the mercy seat, sprinkled the blood so that the presence of God could be. Now listen, Joseph Prince did a wonderful teaching on this. And he talked about, you know, when people were viewing the law, and you're dealing with the Day of Atonement specifically, and he talks about how the mercy seat that had two cherubims sitting on top like of an ark, the ark of the covenant. Covenant, ark. Okay, now the covenant was law. Okay? But the mercy seat, right, sprinkling the blood, you know, so they can cover the sins of Israel, was sitting positioned physically on top. So you had like, think like a box structure. Box was open, the law was placed inside. Mercy seat covered, blood is sprinkled, and the Prince of God now can come, right? Because the people couldn't keep the law. So it required blood to deal with the sin. So this is what has to happen, right? This is Christ now, Melchizedek, okay? So back then, they could make um, atonement or intercession, which is what this was, once a year. And then they live a little while, then they die, then the next person comes, boom, boom, boom. So, the, so in essence, in order for, and this is why you see so many deaths spiritually occurring, so the way the mercy seat is configured, because the law is underneath the mercy seat, if you're going to deal with the law, you have to take the mercy of God away and reach in and grab the law from where it's located and pick it up. This is why you'll see in certain instances as the Ark of Covenant is being transported, when people would take the Ark of Covenant and then they would, <laughs> they would open it, everyone would die because they were exposed to the fullness of the law. There was no mercy covering them. Do you follow? And so the writer is saying here that they would make, they would make intercession once a year, but Christ makes intercession continually. His sacrifice was, is continual, has no end. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered himself up. Now keep in mind, they understood the processes. They witnessed it. They dealt with the atonement. So they knew exactly what he's talking about. The priest had to make sure he was good because, you know, they would tie, right? History tells us that they would tie a rope around the foot of the high priest just in case. He messed up some things and didn't get it squared away because once you got behind that veil, if you wasn't right, if they didn't hear that bell twinkling off your, off your robe, they'd have to pull them on out. Who's next? Now, I don't know who was in that line, but I'd be like, I'm good. I'm... <laughs> next year. I get it next year. They said, Jesus didn't have this issue, right? Okay, he says, uh, For the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Okay. We dealt with all of Hebrews 7 because that's the place where you find the word tithe. So for all of my proof texting fellow preachers out there, let's get it right. Let's teach the word of God truthfully in its proper context. Let's communicate what the Bible is communicating. If you're going to go into the book of Hebrews, you better well understand 
that it's about the supremacy of Christ. It's about showing the inferior aspects of the law. It's about a better covenant than what you had. Now, this concludes the series. I do want to give a couple of shout-outs, though. Because this series started um, when we put the Freedom Center together. We were really desiring to have a place where the truth of God goes forward and people can be freed. Which is why our cool little motto is accept the truth, receive the freedom. And so we, I had been formulating my mind, but you know what I was wanting to do is figure out how to systematically walk through and really do the presentation so that people can start at the beginning and by the time they get toward the end, they would fully have a grasp over what the tithe was about, right? And, I, and I've said continually that the two things you needed to do in dealing with the series were that first you need to thank God for freeing you from the bondage of the law that God required you to tithe and cursed you if you didn't. And number two, you need to forgive those who taught you this in error. You do need to forgive those who taught you this in error. I, I, want, to, I want to take a moment to thank George W. Green, who gave me the format for how to systematically walk people through this understanding. Uh, he has a website, uh, www.inyourbible.com, and uh, it's definitely cool for you to go out and check it out. Uh, he also, there's another website called www.nomoretithing.org. Please check these out. Please check out the information. I don't want someone to think, you know, hey, this is just coming from the Freedom Center. Listen, there's a lot of folks out here who totally get it and understand it. It's not just me, it's not just the Freedom Center. There's a couple of books also that I want to bring to your attention. Um, one, there's a book called Beyond Tithes and Offerings, written by Michael L. Webb. It's called Beyond Tithes and Offerings. Great book to check out. Another book you can check out is To God With All Our Love by Matthew Marks. To God With All Our Love. Another book you can check out, Should the Church Teach Tithing? A Theologian's Conclusions About a Taboo Doctrine by Dr. Russell Earl Kelly. Should the church teach tithing? You can find it by that. You know, look on those websites to sell that stuff like Amazon. Google it. Everybody Googles everything. Um, another book, just so you didn't think it was just, yeah, I just want to make sure you understand that there's lots of references out here. Um, tithing, Low Realm, Obsolete, and Defunct by Matthew E. Nerimore. Tithing, Low Realm, Obsolete and Defunct by Matthew E. Nerimore. And then lastly, you can check out a book entitled The Tithe That Binds by Rory O. Moore. The Tithe That Binds by Rory O. Moore. Okay, remember this. We are no longer under the law. We operate under God's grace, God's love, and God's forgiveness. Bow your heads. God, we thank you today for all that you've shown us, for what you're teaching us. God, we glorify your name. We magnify you. God, we thank you for resetting our priorities, not only as a church, as a people, but as believers, God. 
that we may honor you in our care and love for, for others. God, your son says to us that by our love for one another, people will know that we're his disciples. And God, we ask that our focus and our priority can be in sharing that love with those around us in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community. God, I ask that there are some tremendous miracles that take place in relationships. We thank you for the vision of this place that, that all of us together collectively will experience life change by doing life together. We thank you for that, God, because we know that it comes through your grace, your love, and your forgiveness. Now, in the name of Jesus, we give you praise, honor, and glory forever, God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the message from the Freedom Center Community Church, where people are experiencing life change by doing life together. We desire to partner with every individual so that they may realize the full God potential that's in them. Also, we invite you to become a friend of the Freedom Center Community Church on Facebook. Accept the truth. Receive the freedom. Thanks again for listening. God bless.